0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello,
1: and welcome to this special edition of the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times, recorded live at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. What a warm welcome, bordering on sarcastic (laughs) towards the end. I'm Matt Shawley. Welcome, everybody. A quick reminder, the Red Box Morning Newsletter is now available exclusively to Time subscribers. We currently have a sale on, uh, so if you're not yet a subscriber, you can get our special offer. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash... Red box. Right, down to business. This is what we call a normal episode of the podcast with the cream of the Times reporting and comment teams. We just happen to have a couple of hundred people listening in. Lucy Fisher, of the Times defence correspondent will ask what can be done about Russia. Jenny Russell laments America's abandonment of the liberal world order. And as more celebrities turn political, Ian Martin asks, what is a Kanye West? But first, our occasional ban on talking about the B-word is going to be lifted. The Times Brussels correspondent Bruno Waterfield on Brexit, looking at how Brussels sees Britain and vice versa.
2: So, First of all, the, the Brussels view. Brussels view, well, a basket case. Brexit has broken Britain, turning a once formidable power into a political joke. What a nasty lesson to learn, and there's more to come much more. We'll learn you. The British view? Oh, computer says no, is it? Bloody Brussels bureaucrats. That's why we left. It'll all be fine. We can bank on the Germans to help. After all, we buy their cars.
1: <laughs> Bruno, you have the advantage of knowing the, the Brussels view best because that's where well, I don't know how you do it, frankly, but that's, that's, that's where you spend your, your working life. I mean, in a way, what you've done there is you've summed up yet another example of how the two views are incompatible on almost everything. To sum up for us the, the actual mood in Brussels, the, the, the tension between getting a deal and everything going smoothly, because that's probably in everyone's interest, versus the Britain must be punished for doing this terrible thing.
2: I think, yes, the, the, the mood at the moment in Brussels, let's leave Westminster and London and the Tories and the DBR Arlene, to one side. The mood in Brussels is, is sort of can-do at the moment. Uh, Barnier said last night that a deal was within reach uh, last night. So they're in a sort of, we're going to do a deal posture, we're going to get it over the line. And behind that is a very acute, possibly even overblown sense on their part, that Britain has somehow become a, a basket case. So they confuse the antics of our political class with the entire country, which is one of the things that Brussels uh, will, 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 tends to happen in the uh, European Union. So they, in one sense, they already think there have been consequences. and There's already... Um, A bit of like, we told you so, look what happens, you leave the EU, a country renowned uh, for its stability, renowned for the Conservatives as the natural party of government, and it's all falling apart uh, gloriously. Now, there are people, the purists, the doctrinaires, a man called Martin Selmayer, the Secretary General of the European um, Commission, who really would like to teach Britain a lesson, and if there's some collateral damage in the Netherlands, Portugal, northwest of France, um, they can live with that. Um, Whereas I think actually countries like France, which is in the vanguard of of being tough um, with Britain, are, when push comes to shove, a little bit more uh, pragmatic because, um, after all, Britain is a big economy. um, It's a big country. No one really wants to poison relationships. No one wants Brexit to end in animosity. So I think they will uh, find a deal. Whether a deal can can get through in Britain or not is is altogether a, a, a different proposition at the moment.
1: Let's bring you in in as our token Brexiteer. <laughs> uh, with a straight face. I love
3: the way that you present that. With a, with a
1: straight face, it's all
3: going very well, isn't it? The situation is sub uh, suboptimal.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, this is the guy who said to me a year ago, stop worrying, it's all going to be fine.
3: Well, I do think, ultimately, I do think it's going to be fine. I, th- I, th- I think the, the, the difficulty now and the thing that is changing almost on a kind of hourly or 24-hour basis at Westminster is just trying to crunch the numbers on. Well, There's firstly the question about does Britain get a deal? Brussels certainly wants there to be one and the British side want there to be one. But then the second uh, equally important question is can that deal then pass Parliament? And as someone who's long been in favour of a sort of compromise Brexit and thinks that we should have started the whole thing in a different way, I would be up for compromise, but the House of Commons numbers are incredibly difficult. You have a group of Tory MPs diehards who they claim there's about 80, then they claim there's about 40. I think the reality <laughs> is some of those 40 are lying, and in the end, will vote. <laughs> surely, for Surely,
1: surely you wouldn't get anybody who supported Brexit telling a lie. Ian. <laughs> <laughs> it's never happened,
3: uh, but I think it, it's I think it's probably it's somewhere between 25 and 30. Then. Big question mark with Labour MPs who there are Labour MPs who are about to be deselected anyway, who are in leave constituencies, who I think when it comes to it will probably ultimately vote for a deal because they're going to be kicked out anyway. And then now this wild card in the last 48 hours that the Tory whips had assumed, foolishly, that they had Northern Ireland kind of covered and now the DUP is really playing hardball. So within all of that... If you get a deal, it ends up becoming very, very close. I mean, it could could come down to three, four, five votes ultimately, and so we're in for six, seven, eight weeks of drama in parliamentary terms, the likes of which haven't been haven't been seen. If you ask me to bet, I, I would say that if there is a deal, it will then have the force of not only being May's deal, it'll be Merkel's deal, Macron's deal, it'll be the EU 27, and I think. The overwhelming view in the country. For those who are not in the hard Brexit side or campaigning for a second referendum, lots of people in the middle. I just think want some kind of revolu- resolution and want to move forward.
1: Lucy, in your previous life before you became defence correspondent, we worked together in the lobby in Westminster. And you particularly covered Labour. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with Ian's assessment that in the end enough Labour MPs will, will fall into line? I do not fall into line, but end up back in the deal.
5: I don't. I think that. We're in an unprecedented situation because Brexit is such a huge process that's incomparable to any other policy issue. It really, the, the national interest does play a huge part in, 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 in making people think that, well, MPs will go against the interest of their party or their self-interest in protecting their seat. But I don't think that many will. I don't think that many will be deselected in the end. I think it'll be four or five that will be strategically targeted, sort of old, white, stale male uh, MPs who no-one will particularly miss. I think... Self-
1: Go on, name them. Well,
5: I think, I think they have been named, some of them, no. by, by Len McCluskey uh, and others as, as the people they're targeting. Um, and apart from those people, I think that they all want to keep their seats um, and they won't want to vote against what is likely to be hugely strongly whipped vote by Jeremy Corbyn to vote down a deal. You know, if the deal fails, if, if the vote fails, then the chance of a snap election spike hugely and the chance of a Labour government um, hugely increased. So I think the Labour numbers are unstable.
1: What do you think, Jenny? How do you think it pans out? Assuming she gets a deal and she brings it back to Parliament, what happens?
4: Yeah, I'm with Lucy. I'm very pessimistic about the idea that people ever really think often that they will sacrifice themselves to the national interest or the international interest come to that. And I think that tribalism is, is very important to everybody. And having just been at Labour conference, I didn't see signs of much political bravery on the part of the many Labour MPs who don't support Jeremy Corbyn and the real political well, they problem there, for were them. They, they didn't even go. No, well that's true. But I was talking to some of them on the phone that they weren't there. But <laughs> <laughs> you went to the conference. I then went to the conference them. indeed because I found I wasn't bumping into them.
5: <laughs> and then they
4: said they couldn't bear to be there because it's such a hostile environment as far as they were concerned. But I think the other thing to bear in mind is that of course if you are a Labour person and you vote for this, then those people have seen what happened to the Liberal Democrats when the Liberal Democrats thought we'll act in the national interest, the country's in crisis, we'll go and support the Tory government, not because we believe in Tory principles but because the country is on the edge, we need some resolution, we can't have a hung parliament, we can't have if you remember, after that election, you know, everyone was worried that capital might flee the country and the pound was going to fall and the markets weren't going to fund British debt. Everyone's forgotten that now. But, so the same kind of prospect looms with Brexit. But if Labour MPs were to troop 30 or 40 of them into um, the division lobbies in order to save May on Chequers, they will only be remembered as the betrayers who enabled a dreadful Brexit. No one is going to turn around and say, thanks, all the alternatives look so much worse. And I think they're very aware of the fact that you are not s- seen kindly in your actions. Nobody in political history has ever looked at anybody else and thought, what's the best possible interpretation I could put on your actions? They're much more I think, what is the worst? But I don't and so, and, and, and so, so I think the, ch- the, the guarantee that this will happen is, is, is improbable. You know, it might happen. Personally, I'd be very grateful to those MPs if they did, because I think anything rather than a no-deal Brexit which uh, which I think is a real and dreadful possibility. Don't just say one more thing. I really object to the framing of this entire debate in terms of is Europe punishing us. I think that is by the insane brexiteer argument. It's treating Europe as if it's a kind of repressive parent who's unwilling to give us, you know, a few free nights out. Europe is a group of nations who came together in a cooperative. They are not our parent. We are not their favoured, spoilt child. We do not deserve special treatment. You know, we are storming out of the house and slamming the door, and then we're saying, can I just come back any time I like and help myself to food from the kitchen and slump in front of the TV? And you're saying, well, no, actually, you're either in the family or out of it. You know, your choice was to leave. You're making it sound and we're quite a lot like a parent. And we're stamping our feet. No, no, they're not. They're yeah. just saying there are rules. OK, use the tennis club analogy, if you like. You know, you're in the <laughs> tennis club, you chose to leave. What do you mean you can't come back and play for free on the tennis courts? You know, I, either we're members or we're not. So they're not punishing us. They're just saying there are privileges as members. But I think or, a, yeah. or or you leave, in which case you're an outsider. What's your there's
1: choice? Let's bring Bruno in there. Because is there, is, is, there is differences between different countries about the attitudes to... I think you need to separate out
2: two aspects of it. One is that the, the EU is a, a legal order... Yeah, it has a single market, it has some other artefacts like Schengen and the euro. A lot of them don't work particularly well. The single market um, has given us um, a lot of some trade, uh, growth through trade, but it's also given us the emissions scandal with Volkswagen, mutual recognition. That's part of what it means. We all know about the euro and the eurozone. But the EU obviously wants to defend um, that order. It doesn't want to tear down that order just because one of the countries, Britain, has decided to leave. And that's, you know, completely straightforward. One would expect that. But the other really important factor in this discussion, which actually trumps the economics, actually goes beyond uh, the economics of German car manufacturers or the railhead at Calais or the port of Rotterdam, is the political question. The EU's legal order is primarily besieged not by Brexit but by voters across Europe. And that, that gives the EU's negotiation a different flavour, which is, that for many, Brexit has to be a cautionary tale. It has to be salutary. It has to show... Um, Barnier talks about... Oh, this is a horrible word. Um, Pedagogy. He's mm. French. <laughs> um, he can't say something simply. And, but, but basically, that Brexit needs to be a lesson. It needs to be a lesson to European voters of the benefits of this order, which they don't like. And but I think
3: at the root of the difficulty, and just uh, back on the Labour MPs thing, I didn't say... There are guaranteed 30 or 40. I began by by saying there's a big question mark. There are definitely five stroke six Labour Brexiteers who openly admit it. And I'm just saying that the question is, are there 10, 15, 20 others? And if you look at the numbers, that might be enough for me to win, but we'll see. I think it's fundamentally, and I think the real danger about why it now looks at the moment most like no deal, is there is a fundamental misunderstanding on both Sides, The EU misunderstands how Britain views this. And I think at the root of it, in terms of Britain's misunderstanding, is a misconception of what the European Union is. That traces back to Thatcher, one of the inventors inventors of the single market. But this British idea that we thought we can have the free trade bit and we don't have the rest of it, completely misunderstands how the European Union developed. They don't see those things as distinct. There's a single market, then Maastricht, is deliberately the guarantee given to the weaker, poorer states that they won't have social dumping, so they will have the guarantees on labour laws and German manufacturing won't just land plants on them and exploit them. Single currency is also designed, although it favours Germany, it's designed ultimately to end currency manipulation. So the entire project fits together. Of course, that's Thatcher's failure in the late 1980s. She kind of sees it in terms of her being conned by the law. But that was the project all along, completely coherent. One of the reasons I voted to leave is that we always thought we could just get the trade bit. And we're still trying to do that. We're still saying, can you just give us the trade bit on goods and then we'll sort of try and be nice on the other stuff but not really be, be included. And I think it is a, a way, uh, the whole thing is, I think... The European Union, as currently constituted, is, 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 um, you know, is misconceived. But that's their choice, and it is a coherent political project which we've never fully understood.
1: Lucy, going back to the original point that uh, Bruno was making about the way that Britain is viewed in Brussels and vice versa, is it sometimes feels like British politicians behave like Brussels doesn't have the internet or doesn't, you know, doesn't have the telly and can't see... You know, the, the, so, so messages are put out to address basically a domestic audience ignoring the fact that that's seen in real time in Brussels?
5: Yeah, well, I think that's partly it, but I, I think the psychodrama is you know, partly intended to psych out Brussels as well, and they do the same to us, you know. Um, Guy Verhofstadt's you know, a dab hand at trolling us on, on Twitter with his sort of quips. When you step back from it, it is an incredibly complex negotiation, but it is a negotiation and these things always come down to the 11th hour in some sense and there is always brinksmanship um, and I think that there are, there's something to be said for some of the complaints that, you know, Theresa May backed herself into a corner far too early with Lancaster House and her red lines and, and, and didn't leave enough room for manoeuvre. So, so some people have felt that they need to play out on the public stage part of the negotiation by, by acting up. But... No, I can understand uh, in some ways why Brussels might think that the UK is a basket case, as you uh, put it, Bruno.
1: Just very quickly, because we've got to move on. Uh, Let's just go along the panel. Do you think there's going to be a deal and do you think it'll get through Parliament, Bruno?
2: I think it's 50-50 that there will be a deal. I won't comment um, on the Parliament, um, but the question we need to think about is what will the deal uh, be like? And we're going to be hearing a lot about Brexit after Brexit.
1: What a cheery thought. Lucy?
5: I think there will be a deal and I think it will be voted down. I think there'll be a deal,
4: and I think the chances of it getting through Parliament are quite low at the moment, and God knows what we do then.
3: Do I think a deal will be patched together? I think it will be patched together. I think well, Bruno's right, sort of 50-50, 60-40, I think it will. Personally, and I, this could be completely wrong, I just think that the force and the momentum of the EU27 and of Macron and Merkel saying this is it, it's this or no deal which Britain hasn't prepared for and they haven't prepared for properly either, I think that will probably carry it over the line if there is a deal.
1: Part of me still thinks there will be a deal and it will get through Parliament, but I wonder if it's a bit like when you look at your phone to see what the weather's going to be like at the weekend. (laughs) And if it says sunny, you think, oh good, it's going to be sunny at the weekend. And if it says rain, you think, oh, that (laughs) will (laughs) change. And you do it all week. Uh, thinking, what is the Of course, it's going to stay sunny. But if it's raining, that definitely—that's not right. That won't be right. Uh, they'll sort that out. They'll sort out the <laughs> rain. They'll sort out the rain. Listen, it's time to move on. I'm sure we'll talk about Brexit in future episodes. Thrillingly, um, uh, but let's move on. This is Jenny Russell and America's place in the world.
4: Look, if you thought we were having a very cheerful discussion about Brexit, I'd now like to depress you even further. This topic is about, in a way, a similar failure of imagination, our failure to believe, as Matt says, that really anything could go very badly wrong in our lives, which no deal certainly would be. And this is about the same thing with the international world order, because this week, I think, the sinister disappearance and the probable murder of the critical Saudi journalist has focused our attention on the slow disaster that's been emerging under President Trump, which is America's abandonment of the liberal world. Order. Saudi Arabia would never have done this if it didn't assume that it could get away with it, because America is no longer committed to trying to uphold human rights and liberal conventions. Trump doesn't understand or care about America's role in creating the last seven decades of unprecedented global peace and prosperity. The US had a great many flaws as a global policeman, but as it withdraws from this role, the world is going to become a much more uncertain and frightening place.
1: Jenny, it strikes me as an interesting development that somebody with your politics laments the decline of America's position as that global policeman.
4: He means I'm a lefty. (laughs) But, you know, there's there's a point of realism, which is, you know, there's nothing ideal about um, America's role as global policeman. And God knows lefties could go through all the absolute horrors of American foreign policy from trying to overthrow legitimate regimes in Latin America or what it did in Vietnam or anything else. But flawed as it is, it has nevertheless attempted ever since the end of the Second World War to establish a world order in which most nations could be attempting to work towards um, an ideal in which democracy was, was respected and human rights were desirable, if not always upheld, and that the worst excesses of regimes were held in check by America's promise that either it would offer people carrots of trade and aid and money and development and so on, or the stick of, of, of threatening that it would intervene if, if they didn't. And now Trump has retreated entirely from that, and I think we're beginning to see the consequences of that in behaviour in Syria and Erdogan in Turkey, in, uh, in in Russia's new confidence in its ability to expand, in the poisonings of the Skripals in Salisbury, and now the murder, as it looks like, in in Turkey of this Saudi dissident journalist. Ian, what do you
1: think is behind that? Is it is it in the same way that in Britain, sort of. Global interference fatigue uh, took yep. hold after the sort of the Blair era we didn't want to be involved in everything. is that just is, is Trump just reflecting the American mood?
3: Uh, I think he is and I think he his is an exaggerated cartoonish version of a, surely not of a process <laughs> that begins with uh, Obama because America's retreat after the aggressive Bush doctrine, post 9/11 i mean if politics kind of goes to sleep internationally globally in the 90s feels to be settled there's a markets consensus russia is coming in from the cold it's not the end of history obviously but that's not quite what fukuyama meant but you, things feel to be things feel settled and of course there are there are counter cases to that rwanda um, what happens in the in the balkans but it seems to be heading sort of broadly in the right direction 9-11, the shock of 9-11, the disaster of um, of Iraq, mean that there's a backlash, which is Obama. And a lot of this, I think, is attributable to the Obama years. It worries, it worries me as someone who thinks that the West will have to reassert itself at some point. What I don't know, I mean, p- particularly against China, where we are going to have to be ultra-assertive at some point in the next couple of decades, I think, because of what's happening in terms of technology. What, but what we don't know about the American system as it's becoming more and more partisan, and you look at the, the numbers published last weekend about partisan hatred of other parties, which used to be pretty pretty consistently low. Do you, if You're a Democrat, do you hate the Republicans? And vice versa. That takes off for Democrats after the contested Bush victory over Gore in two thousand. And then for Republicans, takes off when Obama wins who they simply don't like. And it's now gone from, forgive me, not quite, uh, quoting the figures from memory, round about a kind of steady 10% to 40 stroke 50. Wow. So there's this partisan division. It's almost impossible to imagine an American president who speaks at moments of crisis, as even Reagan uh, did or Eisenhower did, or Kennedy did at key moments, or LBJ did, who speaks for Americans of an, who vote for another party. What we don't know is how robust the American system is and whether it bounces back from this, and you get a reaction, which is because of an economic crisis or um, something going wrong in war and diplomacy, that America swings back to a more mainstream... President who can try and build links on the other side of the aisle. We just don't know.
1: Lucy, in terms of America's place in the world, you sort of, and there's been various books and insider accounts of what's going on in the White House. You have this sort of story of Donald Trump at the top saying and doing things and announcing things, and he likes some things, he doesn't like the others. But the sort of apparatus of the American system is still carrying on. Uh, regardless, and you speak to people in the UK government and they say their relations with whether it's the Pentagon or the uh, US defence or security services is still largely as it was. Is that your assessment?
5: Well, I think it was right at the beginning when he was elected. Bit by bit you've seen some of the grown-ups in the room walk out, you know, Nikki Haley whatever you might think of her is just the latest example of someone who wants to leave with their stock still high to some extent. So I'm not Convinced that, that the system is as robust uh, as it could be, and the American system, of course, is not as robust as the UK system, where we have an impartial civil service. In Washington, they're all political appointments. Anyways, there's already been a lot of favours bought by some of the nuttier people that supported Trump in his campaign. But I just want to go back to something that um, Ian said, because I, I don't think that this—I um, don't think this is so much cultural and a backlash culturally against Obama. I think it goes back to economics and, 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 and specifically the crash. You know, I think that Trump's election and some of the movements around the world you've seen are, are, are the results of um, a, a delayed anger from the crash, the fact that no one was really punished and the sense that the system hasn't really changed. You know, we've all sort of now read Michael Lewis and seen the big short and just about caught up with some of the ingenious shenanigans that some of the more clever and unethical financiers were up to ahead of 2008 and, you know, collateralized debt obligations just about trips off the tongue. But I think everyone has a sense that they don't know what it is, but those people are still ahead of the curve, ahead of the regulators, ahead of the law, and, and still have their wealth in their pocket and haven't been punished. So I, I think that that, the economics, a sense that there's been a downturn... And from which people still their wages haven't recovered. There's been a squeeze in living standards. Um, uh, is a bigger factor in some of the changes that we're seeing.
1: Bruno, what's the sort of the European view of Trump? Because he's he's been over. and He's met various. Of them. I mean, Macron hugged him very close and then went to Capitol and was just basically slagged him off. Theresa May's tried to cozy up to him and then distance herself, and neither of those seems to have worked. What's the, what's the right approach? What, what, do you know what to do with him?
2: They're split in the sense that, that half of them see him as a buffoon um, and then the other half um, probably attribute to him um, powers of reasoning and cunning uh, that, that really aren't there um, <laughs> <clears throat> what you have to understand about the European Union specifically is it, it likes order um, liberal shmibrel, You know, in, in some respects are cozying up to Sisi Uh, in Egypt at the moment because they think he can help with uh, the migration crisis. That guy's not a liberal, uh, but they quite like him if he can help them with a a bit of order. He may kill and torture thousands of people, he may put tens of thousands of people in prison, but if he can keep Schengen going um, then he's a good pal. (laughs) So they see uh, Trump as a disruptor because what you've got to realise as well is that in Europe, America has always been viewed as, with some uh, suspicion by a lot of people going back to Woodrow Wilson's famous 14 points speech, which heralded the end of empires in Europe and actually started the end of the British Empire as well, if only people uh, had realised, to 1945, when America did effectively abolish the British Empire, and a damn good thing. Two, America has actually often been a disruptor in international relations, and in fact, when America is usually at its most liberal, it's when it's at its most uh, disruptive. So the EU looks at Trump with great trepidation because he's disruptive, In terms of the content of a lot of his policies, they're much more, much, much more uh, divided. The idea that the the French uh, are for liberal free trade and the WTO is a very, very strange invention. (laughs) Um,
1: And what about, because one of the arguments for Britain's place in the EU was that that America could pick up the phone to whoever was in number 10, and that was their route into the EU. Um, Who is it that plays that role now? Or is that just not a thing because Trump doesn't, know how to use the phone. I think it's Macron. <laughs> Macron. I think it's Macron. He doesn't like Merkel.
2: That's what we've, uh, that's what we've heard. And, and Merkel's not a Trump type, really. She's the wrong kind of woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> Macron, I think the Americans like. And I think that was al- already beginning, particularly over Syria, um, when Britain didn't step up uh, to the plate, when Britain wouldn't be poodle, if you like. Um, and the French have sh- are showing that good British spine, the willingness to, to take some
3: casualties... Um, to step up to the plate. The baton had already gone to the French. Ian? I I think that is... I don't accept the premise there. If you think of the 1980s, when the special relationship is theoretically at its absolute closest because of the relationship between Thatcher and Reagan, though they did fight, is that Reagan calling her was not looking for a route into the European Union or into the EEC. That was about Britain's security and intelligence and defence position primarily its role in NATO. Now, that raises one of the most interesting things about what's... I hate to mention the Brexit word again, but there, there is a different component to European relations. I say, as somebody who voted for Brexit, we have to face up to this. America is, if not withdrawing from NATO, then it's going to do less of it. There has to be a grown-up conversation among people who live in the European space, whether they're in the European Union or not, about how... Borders are defended about how Russia is repelled. We'll come back to that, I'm sure. Uh, and how the European space is, is policed and we look after our, uh, our interests. And that is... The European Union can't do that because Britain isn't going to be in it. It's going to be, have, have to be something other. Jenny?
4: Yes, and in fact, this whole conversation about the liberal world order is, is exactly one of the really powerful reasons why I was opposed to Brexit in the first place, because I, we much too easily take for granted that the world that we live in now is the, is the natural Way that the world ought to be, and that that it that 's safe in the way that we have understood it, and of course, the natural world order is one in which um, the most powerful simply do whatever they please unless somebody else defeats them or unless somebody else can offer them a very good reason why they shouldn 't do what they 're doing in the terms of rewards and I fear that what 's going to happen now with brexit is that Britain is going to be much weaker when we are te- when you when 've we've, when we've separated ourselves from the European Union and I suspect that almost everybody who comes along to an event like this in Cheltenham is a believer in the sort of enlightenment principles and sort of decency and human rights and um, logic and rationality and that we ought to discuss things rather than go to war about them. And that, those are the kinds of principles on which the European Union was founded. And actually, the world is full of threats and, and full, of, full of people who don't think in this way at all. Russia doesn't think this way. China doesn't think this way. ISIS doesn't think this way. Trump doesn't think this way. Turkey doesn't think this way. And we would be much stronger as a country if we stayed together in a group of nations who were prepared to work according to those sorts of principles. Now, we already see how fragile it is because you see what's happening in Uh, with Orban, and we we see what's happening in Poland, we can see how easily and more appealing it is to people to say, well, let's just appeal to humans' natural instincts to stay with their tribes and to um, defeat the other. And that's that's the way I feel we're going. That's
3: NATO. You've just described, I mean, in in that field, that's NATO. That can't be the European Union. The European Union has made various attempts to become a security, intelligence and defence player. It's taken 20 years to do it and has got really absolutely nowhere.
4: But but, but its power has been much greater than simply um, its military power, which is where they may have to think about moving in the future. Its power has been, for instance, about trading relationships. When Russia tried to to bully Poland over some row about meat about eight years ago, they could have just trampled all over of Poland. They, they, they threatened to ban all Poland's meat but imports. That, that, that but, but the EU was able to say, no, if you do that, we'll ban right. all your imports to us. So and that th- there's economic power as well as military power. that is, as well that as is about power. as
3: much use as a, as, as a chocolate um, fireguard when worked. the Russians are buzzing the Swedes, and are attempting to disrupt civil society across Europe and are threatening the Estonians. I mean, of course you need both things, but ultimately, when it comes to major threats, the European Union is not, I mean, it's not a security and intelligence player.
4: But we're not just talking about that. We're talking about wielding power in the world, which is often as much economic as it is military.
3: I'm I'm going
1: to leap in there, because inevitably I've completely lost control of time. (laughs) Uh, we are going to take a short break. After the break, we'll be discussing Vladimir Putin and Taylor Swift. We'll be back after this short break.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
4: and think about
0: work. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Welcome back to the Red Box podcast. I'm joined on this special panel at the Cheltenham Literature Festival by Ian Martin, Jenny Russell, Bruno Waterfield, and this is Lucy Fisher.
5: Russia has attempted nerve agent assassinations on our soil. Its submarines are swimming into our territorial waters, its jets are buzzing our airspace, and, perhaps most worryingly to my mind, it threatens potentially fatal chaos with catastrophic cyber attacks. Are the UK and the West at risk of appeasing the Kremlin? And how should we fight back, particularly in the new domains of cyber and space?
1: So, Lucy, just explain a bit how you go from being a political reporter defence correspondent and try to get into all of this. Have you been surprised by the extent of the threat to Russia? Because sometimes when it's a political thing, it's sort of an occasional statement of Theresa May that sort of drifts out of your mind. But this is your sort of everyday living in terror.
5: Well, (laughs) well, the interesting insight that um, I I think that I've had going into covering defence is that um, politicians really don't give a damn about it. I think, in some ways, that's obvious. Their post bags aren't filled with people writing to express their angst about the um, defence of the realm. They're, they're full of letters about, you know, their crap local hospital, or you know, their children can't get into a good or outstanding Ofsted-rated um, school, and that's that is understandable in some way. But working backwards from that, I've thought about my new job and how to um, inform our readers, and and in a sense, I suppose, try and educate them about the threat and why they need to care about defence. And looking to to answer that question for myself as well as as the readers, um, I have been alarmed to piece together so much of the Russian activity. And I'm glad and in some ways heartened to see, for example, last week the UK and the Netherlands and the US collaborating to bring out a lot more information about the GRU, the Russian Intelligence Service, hacking into um, sporting authorities, the US indicting seven Russian spies. But when you look across the map of the world at all the things that the GRU have been up to over the past few years, and it's not just sort of the World Anti-Doping Organization or the Olympic Committee that they've hacked, its political institutions, they've tried to interfere with the Malaysian Airlines MH17 crash investigation, its French TV companies. I slightly have begun to realise just how behind the curve the public is and the political conversation is in the UK and the West in dealing with just how extensive and in some ways sophisticated the Russian operation is. I know we can all laugh at um, Dolce and Gabbana as... um, The two spies have been nicknamed uh, by the security services. Um, But uh, it it is a linked-up operation. It's been happening under our noses in a coordinated way for a long time now. Uh, And and it's worrying. We're only just catching up.
1: In normal times, and I'm not suggesting we're in normal times now, but in normal times you'd have perhaps looked to the opposition to be raising this as a cause for concern. But Jeremy Corbyn isn't in that place, is he? being concerned about Russia's activity
5: no I think it feels to me that we're in a, a real turning point now not only the sort of is NATO in crisis you know the 70 year peace uh, settlement that we've had in the West but in the UK it's not just questions about trident and the nuclear deterrent and I think you know there are legitimate questions to be had about the cost of those things the cost of huge strategic Platforms like the two aircraft carriers, which are going to cost 6.1 billion in total, a colossal amount of money. But, of course, it's the political consensus is in some ways broken. And I think that, again, that hasn't really been acknowledged and we're not, we're not really thinking about what it would mean um, if Jeremy Corbyn did get into power, what would happen to, to the state of our armed forces.
1: Bruno, we assume that Brussels is totally consumed with Brexit and they don't think about anything else for a single moment, because that's what we do. They've literally got Russia on the doorstep. How, in the sort of league table of things that the European Union and European countries are worried about, uh, where is Russia?
2: Russia's up there, um, but it's partly up there because of Donald Tusk, who's the president of the European Council, That's for what we call the summits of European leaders. And he's a Pole, so Russia's a big deal um, if you're a Pole, because it is on your doorstep. It is menacing you, and it's done more than menace you um, in the past. So he... he, he keeps it to the fore of people's uh, attentions because European countries have very different geographies. They have very different um, histories um, and traditions. So many European countries are not uh, quite sympathetic to Russia. Um, Some countries have very close economic relations. So much more than Trump doing any damage to NATO, the German Nord Stream gas pipeline um, has really caused a problem because the Germans lent across Poland and said let's do a cosy deal that bypasses um, the Ukraine that makes sure we um, have cheap gas and, and by the way this pipeline won't even touch your territory so the only two people who can switch it off are us um, and the Russians. That did an immense amount of damage so, so Europe is very conflicted about Russia. It likes to um, talk about what well, a terrible threat um, Russia is but there are all kinds of histories and geographies which mean that European countries are really really tangled up with Russia and untangling that it would be a very, very big um, problem. And I think one of the problems with, with NATO post Afghanistan is it's not clear at the moment that this sort of Article 5 uh, principle that um, if any country was attacked by Russia rather than the Soviet Union of the past, um, that that kind of automatic uh, mutual uh, self defense would be triggered.
1: Ian, what can we do about Russia? They, they send two people to the UK, they, they, well, they tried to kill one person, they end up poisoning three and killing someone else. And we kick a few people out of London. To the public, that doesn't look like an equal response, but it's difficult to know what else you do, because the alternative is you escalate to the point of, of being in a sort of yeah. conflict.
3: My mind has changed quite a bit on this in the last six months or so, in that I would have always bought into the realpolitik post-end-of-the-Cold War view of Russia that we have to respect the Russian bear, that we have to, you know, don't poke the Russian bear with a stick, treat it with respect, um, go out of your way to be as uh, constructive um, with the Russian state as possible. And then I was on a panel with an academic who shall remain nameless for the sake of his health, who has a particularly brilliant take on Russia, having studied it his entire career, who says, we have all, and one of the things we have to adjust to in the West and we have to rethink is that we've all fallen for the myth of Russia, partly because of battles like Stalingrad, partly because of the sacrifices in the Second World War, which is understandable but that this is a country which has a deeply dysfunctional view of itself, the idea of the Russian soul. It's all there in Russian literature. And actually, we shouldn't pander to it excessively. It's a deeply dysfunctional economy with major economic problems, um, uh, per capita GDP that is incredibly low, um, corruption-ridden um, society, and intelligence service which turns out Salisbury... Of course, damage was um, was done, but turns out to be almost comically inept. So I'm not saying we should dismiss it, but just have a more realistic uh, view of it and not take the Russians at their own, or well, the Russian state at at its own estimation.
1: Jenny, just before we move on, because we're running out of time, what what should we do with? Do we engage with Russia? Do we try and shut them out? Is the what's the right approach?
4: I think the really terrifying thing about what Russia is doing at the moment is that it sees that it's getting away with murders of its own citizens and indeed of British citizens or on other people's soil. If you look at the statistics for all the number of mysterious deaths of Russian diplomats or of Russian dissidents or of people who suspected of involvement in, say, the Steele dossier in Washington over the past couple of years, it amounts to sort of 15 or 20, I think, people who suddenly strangle themselves with dog leads as, as somebody who's about to give evidence against um, the Russian airline Aeroflot was found dead in South London the week after the Skripal poisoning. And it is now beginning to be assumed by the British police that this may not have been a suicide and that it may indeed have been a murder. And the same kind of doubts are now around the deaths of maybe, I can't remember, eight or ten people who've died on British soil over the past couple of years. And there have been a similar number of Russian diplomats in America and around the place who bashed themselves on the head and found dead on their floors. And a lot of these cases have been written off at the time, both by Britain and America, perhaps largely for political reasons, as suicides or mysterious deaths. And I think it's becoming increasingly likely that in fact these were Russian political assassinations. And as long as we don't take any proper action against Russia, they will know that they can go on doing this. And I think we absolutely have to work out how we can stand up against it. Though, to come back to our previous point, as a little separate nation hived off from Europe, perhaps without any backing from America, I don't quite know how we do that.
5: Well, I just wanted to say, talking about what, what we can do, it, it feels to me that sanctions have definitely been the most effective course of action so far. And, in fact, despite Donald Trump's perceived and alleged, perhaps, um, closeness to Russia, the US has been much more dynamic and flexible introducing um, the cancer sanctions... Uh, despite Trump, isn't despite it? Despite I mean, Trump. A yes, well, he spoke out against Trump. him, yeah, um, in April. But I... Uh, And and alongside that, we can, of course, kind of kick Russia out of international clubs, like we kicked them out of the G8 after they annexed Crimea. But with sanctions, I think we also have to be aware that there are sometimes unintended consequences. Russia is a gangster state. It is the oligarchs who are holding many of the puppet strings. And when they're hit, they start looking for, for new ways to act. And I was interested this week with reports of Russian military companies, Wagner Group, RSB Group, these mercenaries that... The, sort of the Kremlin outsources some of its dirty work to scouting out places on in the eastern coast of Libya to build military bases. Speaking to defence sources who said, "Well, this is all the, the work of the oligarchs, as they're getting squeezed and feeling the sanctions bite, they're looking for ways to, to make and launder money, and in someone like Libya with oil is a, is a perfect example. So in a way we might see more expansionism elsewhere.
1: Well, very good. Well, let's move, let's move on uh, with our sort of slightly lighter uh, final and finally item. Ian, you're the, the jet skiing squirrel of the, uh, let's of the a- evening.
3: Let's be absolutely honest here. I wanted to talk about the um, events on Wall Street and the mini crash there's been. And Matt said, look, can you talk about Kanye West and Taylor <laughs> Swift instead? <laughs> Just read it out of (laughs) you. By by public demand, possibly. So for those of you who haven't seen it, I mean, Kanye West has been in the Oval Office talking rubbish with um, President Trump and actually has designed on his iPhone a replacement for Air Force One, which he held up. And there was a lot of swearing, and people are still trying to work out what he was going on about. But then meanwhile, you had this week you had Taylor Swift who has been identified with the other side in politics, has come up very, very, very strongly now for the Democrats. And I just really wanted to raise the question, should pop stars get involved in politics? Uh, who are they? And what is a Kanye West? Because I don't know. <laughs> well, he's not now, is he? He's,
1: he's, he's just a yay.
3: But he's, I, I've no idea what you're talking I- about. So <laughs> Sorry about I,
1: that. I think uh, a Times panel discussion about the merits of Kanye West would be quite short. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's, let's concentrate on the specific point you, you raised about yeah. um, pop stars and celebrities getting involved in politics. I've actually written my column for Saturday's paper on this um, exact subject. And part of me thinks that celebrities and modern people should get in- involved in politics. And yet whenever they do, I end up thinking, oh, you weirdo, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you doing that for? You're alienating a half of your base or you don't totally know what you're talking about. And it seems a bit, at the weekend, we had a whole load of celebrities writing a letter to The Observer saying they still didn't like Brexit. And I just sort of yeah. think, is there I anyone who, who really didn't shocked. know what they thought about Brexit until Rita Ora told them that it, <laughs> she didn't <laughs> well, like it? She didn't it. like Brexit.
3: Yeah, I think that's, that's uh, a good point. And I can see what is in it for the politicians. So what does Trump get out of this bizarre performance this evening in the in the Oval Office? Well... Kanye West and um, Kim uh, Kardashian, I actually knew that, his wife. um,
1: You've spent all afternoon reading this up, haven't you? There's
3: this thing called called Google. And they appeal to not just a certain demographic, but a huge demographic. So the, 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 the main thing that Trump will take away from that is that I think Kanye West was really they're pledging to go out and campaign for him um, in the midterm. So that's probably, in some close contests, worth worth something. And and Trump is a celebrity guy. What I find really fascinating about this, and in a way the Brits were pioneers of this, because with two of the most interesting cases back in the 60s, with diametrically opposed responses to politics, which is that you had Jagger and Lennon, who were both, around the same time, both radicalised in 68. And Lenin's response is to go deeper and deeper into politics, to make himself a political being with then probably disastrous um, consequences for his career, certainly in terms of the battle he fought with US authorities and the courts just to stay in the US in the 70s. And Jagger, who goes to Grosvenor Square, throws a little bit of rock, um, thinks about becoming an MP, and thinks even about forming a new party, so even then people were trying to do it, pulls back from that being much, much smarter than Lenin and realises there's no money in this and this is a a dead end. People don't want to hear politics uh, from from pop stars and I think leads a much happier, wealthier life as a result. So I think Jagger got it right. Jenny, one of
1: the interesting things about this, Kanye West, Donald Trump
3: type is actually in the 2016
1: election, Hillary Clinton was the one who had all of the celebrities. And this was seen a bit like the Remain campaign. The Remain campaign had all of the celebrities, and that, in, you know, the, the, the view of people like us was, well, that's great, that means they're definitely going to win if like, they've got... Like all. Bono
3: to appeal to the young people. Exactly,
1: Bono. And Eddie Izzard always... <laughs> Eddie Izzard always, always always, ready to swing a campaign against whatever it is he's campaigning for. Um, <laughs> And actually, I, think I was reading this week, there have been even academic studies into the fact that actually Hillary Clinton having all of those celebrity backers backs far, backfires if they look like the establishment telling people what to do. Donald Trump actually turned it to his advantage.
4: Yeah, although apparently he was really miserable when he discovered that there were no big names coming either to his rallies or to his inauguration. But he turned around and presented it as, well, I love you, the people, even if you can't sing or dance like the famous celebrities. But yeah, I think that's right. I think it did just look like, you know, the cosy, the wealthy elites that didn't work for Clinton. But when we're discussing this, I think we would be quite wrong to say that um, celebrities in a way should be denied Either a conscience or a liberal voice. I mean, what's the point of being alive and having an audience should you feel strongly about something if you don't come out and, and talk about how you feel? What's, what's the point of being Taylor's? Taylor Swift with what is it? 5 million Twitter followers or something? That's a lot, more that's a lot, more that's a than 100, 100 the president. 100
1: million, 55 100 million people million. on okay, Instagram. Well, I won't try to explain what well Instagram that's, is. That, that's
4: real power then. And the fascinating thing about what she did is that um, I don't know how this compares to normal American statistics but I know that um, a few days later whoever was running one of the getting people to vote, to register to vote campaigns in America said they had this incredible spike in voter registrations in one particular area that just had 65,000 people registering to vote on the back of Taylor Swift saying get out there and use your vote because the fascinating thing about her was she wasn't just saying vote for the candidates that I agree with she was saying use your vote it matters have a political opinion and I think that's really valuable.
1: Lucy I want to ask you about the during the EU referendum campaign you in particular covered a long-running saga of uh, be live, <laughs> yeah. which was when uh, the one of the Leave campaigns tried to organise a concert of yeah. big name stars yeah. uh, to come out and back Brexit and they sort of ended up with two fifths of five. Yeah, Someone from Bucks Fizz.
5: An X Factor winner, all of whom were pulled as soon as they started getting calls from journalists asking them their views on the customs union and how <laughs> it would work if you know Brexit really happened. See, I, I don't have a problem um, in principle like Jenny says with, with, with celebrities um, having a view, what I do find incredibly um, mind-numbingly, dementingly irritating um, <laughs> is the total lack of self-awareness um, so many of them have. Um, oh, sorry, and, celebrities. <laughs> the celebrities, as well as the lack of um, re- really not having grappled with the issues. Um, for me, a case in point is Lily Allen. Seeing her go off to the, the jungle in, in Calais and sort of bawling her eyes out, apologising on behalf of her country, and, you know the next day was you know whatever she was was swanning on on stage and living house sort a of very lavish life it, and then you know her again, you know last Christmas, you know her tenant renting out her very luxurious north London flat didn't want to move out, and so she was sort of complaining about being homeless you know <laughs> i I just think that if you if you want to go out there and be on the public stage you 've got to put you know your money where your mouth is and you know. Walk the walk, and, and again covering another set of political concerts. You know, Jeremy Corbyn in, 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 in Labour have in many ways sort of swept up um, the youth vibe. There's the Grime for Corbyn collective. You saw sort of Stormzy <laughs> collecting um, an award and going on stage and sort of saying, "This is for jazz." Um, and, and, and so I think, frankly, slightly fair enough. Labour press office thought, oh, brilliant, we'll get Stormzy to come and play at Jazz Fest. Ring him up thinking, well, you know, he's such a big jazz fan, he'll probably do it for free. Um, n- not not the case, is, uh, <laughs> is, is my understanding. So I think it's, it's an easy, cheap political point for some of these celebs to make, and, um, and then the next moment's f- forgotten, and they're squaffing Krug in the green room.
1: We're not doing that for the
5: avoidance of doubt. <laughs>
2: Bruno, it tells us a lot about um, the. Culture of culture of celebrity, or the character of celebrity, which is rather empty at the moment, there are people who are celebrities for apparently doing uh, not much at all, as far as I can tell. Um, our political culture is rather debased and actually very, very shallow and worthy and pious most of uh, the time. So you have these sort of celebrities who've never really done anything or achieved very much, who are often very, very young, so they have no experience. Whatsoever, apart from going on a television show, who embrace an aspect of a very uh, me-centred, shallow uh, political culture, which is about defining yourself by feeling good, uh, by feeling feeling bad. So it is all just very, very um, empty. Um, should people do it? I mean, think of someone like Paul Robeson. You know, an a immensely talented actor, very clever, uh, thoughtful man, a great. A singer who embraced very very dangerous and radical ideas just of civil rights, let alone his his marxism now that's the kind of celebrity that's mired or rooted in in real character, and when you look at some like Swift, I mean, she's not even exactly Aretha Franklin. It's, it's not even good music. And, and frankly, you have to
1: say, what has she ever oh, done? I feel like you're losing the hall, Voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> you're all like, right, well You're all uh, that uh, up until that last bit. I just wanted to bring up one person who was a celebrity who was turned up on the Today programme this week, was Gwyneth Paltrow, talking about goop. Which I there's was, was vagina legs in all sorts of weirdness that she flogs uh, mumbo jumbo, and but she was asked about basically all this mumbo jumbo stuff that she sells, and she was asked about the fact that some of the claims that she'd made uh, didn't totally stack up. And she came out with this line, which I think all politicians should use all the time. Her explanation was there was a verbiage issue. <laughs> and I think all politicians should use that Whenever they're trying to explain anything away Now, um, it turns out that if you get five journalists together And ask them about politics They massively overrun You can become a Times subscriber to get my morning uh, newsletter I get up at five o'clock every morning And basically take the piss out of politics uh, So um, that you don't have to read all the boring bits You can go to thetimes.com.uk Forward slash redbox My thanks to Bruno, Lucy, Jenny and Ian For me, Matt Cholley at the Cheltenham Literature Festival It's goodbye <laughs>
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.